Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm Tom Rowland, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. I'm glad you're here. Today's episode is brought to you by Waypoint TV. Waypoint TV has 60, almost 70 different producers now, and there are 2,000 plus episodes, short films, all kinds of content that you can go and stream on any device. You can do it for free. Go to waypointtv.com, find out how, and binge away. Our stuff's there. You can check it out. We got every single episode we've ever produced on Waypoint TV. Just search Saltwater Experience and you can see them all. Today, we are doing something completely different. I thought I would try to do a live podcast and answer questions because we have a lot of people sending in emails and you know asking questions on social. And a lot of times I don't really have time to answer them in a way that those questions deserve. So in the past, we've done live Facebook feeds, live Instagram, and it's been popular. Get a lot of people on there, answer the questions, but I haven't been doing it regularly. And I I never really liked doing it because, well, one, I did like doing it to interact with with people that wanted to ask questions. That that part's awesome. But the part that wasn't awesome is that it just kind of disappears. And so now that we have the podcast going and you know, it becomes searchable on Google and people can listen to the podcast and share the podcast. Now it's more interesting to me because the answers or the questions that most people have, honestly, are the same questions that many other people have. So answering those kind of questions, that's interesting to me to help a lot of people to try to become a better fisherman, better hunter, better outdoorsman, better whatever. If I can help, I'm happy to do so, but I'd like to help as many people as we can all at the same time. So today's episode is an attempt 
at a live Facebook, a live Instagram, and a live podcast all at the same time. And probably par for the course when you try to do too many things at the same time. It doesn't exactly work out like maybe I had hoped. Uh, It was kind of funny. Comedy of errors in the beginning as I get the Instagram going, trying to get the Facebook going, forget my password. Then it tells me I need to install Chrome. Of course, that's a problem. Then once we get it going, we... (laughs) I put my phone on the power button, turn the computer off. So Facebook users have to bear with us. The Instagram users got most of the attention. And honestly, that's where most of the comments were coming from and questions. But I did my best to answer. We finally got all the kinks worked out. I have my son Turner there to select the questions and help me to read them out because, man, there's just so many things going on at once. Tons of people asking questions all at once, and uh, it's it's quite distracting. So anyway, I did the best I could. We will definitely do this again, and we will do it in a little slightly different way. We also videoed this podcast in Comedy of Errors, and that will be on YouTube, so you can check it out there as well. But two hours of questions and answers. So I hope it helped. I hope you enjoy it. And just bear with us through some of these difficulties and and bobbles and stuff. It's definitely not not polished. But uh, if you like it, man, shoot us an email. Podcast at Saltwater Experience. Let us know we should do it again. And as always, if you could go and rate and review this podcast on iTunes, it would be greatly helpful. Really appreciate it. And also just want to thank you all for listening to the podcast and, and being part of this experiment and, and really being part of our family. We appreciate you guys and couldn't do any of this stuff without you. So thank you very much. And man, I hope this helps. Here we go. We're going live right now. So here we are. First live podcast ever. And we're doing this on uh, Instagram and we're trying to do it on Facebook too. Hopefully we'll get that worked out. Um, and Turner is going to start feeding some questions. We had we had some really good questions that came in from the uh, from the um, the email address podcast at saltwater experience. And so we'll start on some of those. I wrote, I wrote down a few of those and, um, and we'll start on some of those. One of my favorite ones was from, uh, uh, some young anglers that are looking to get their captain's license. And so I had quite, quite a few people ask about, um, what would be the best way to, travel down the road of getting your captain's license and becoming a guide. I'm assuming that that's what you want to do if you're getting your captain's license. And those are all great questions. Um, so I think the best way by far, certainly if you're pretty, pretty smart, um, you can probably just get a book and, um, Oh, awesome. You want to just do that one here? Okay. So we got the Facebook going. If you, um, if you're pretty smart, you can probably just get a book and, and study, but I don't suggest that because there's a lot of stuff that's really tough to to go over. A lot of the the um, a lot of the mapping things that you have to do in order to get the captain's license are are really difficult. So I suggest, dang it, Drake, <laughs> I need you. Um, I suggest that you go to Sea School, and there's one in Key West run by Captain Flynn Smith. It turned off completely. 
Captain Flynn Smith, and he he actually takes you out on a boat, and um, and you study um, with him there. You study for the test, and then you actually do um, some of the stuff that you're going to do, um, you know, on the boat. So you learn how to shoot a flare gun. You learn how to do all kinds of stuff, and um, that in my opinion, is the best way to get your captain's license. There are sea schools all over the country. I just happen to know that Flynn Smith is an excellent instructor, and um, and that is a not only a good experience, but um, I think that it would benefit anybody that, that does that. All right. So how to get your captain's license. Check out Sea School and, and Flynn Smith. Um, so here's a question. What are the best baits for tarpon? Um, that's an excellent question. In the Keys, we might fish a little bit differently than a lot of people do in other places, but the best baits for tarpon in the Florida Keys, we use a lot of mullet. We'll use both live and dead mullet, and then we will also use pilchards, mostly alive. Um, throw the cast net in the morning and, um, and fill up the live well with pilchards. We use that with just a small circle hook and a, a lighter leader so the pilchard can swim well. And uh, then at Bahia Honda, we're using live blue crabs, and those are kind of small, like kind of um, uh, almost permit size. And you use that um, on the Saltwater Experience website. I've written a couple of articles where you can see um, the exact rig for Bahia Honda. Use either a cork or a balloon, about a 20 to 25-foot leader, and a couple of split shots, depending on, um, depending on the uh, the size or, or the current and the depth of the fish. So you will um, you will be able to get down to the fish. And those fish are acting funny. Uh, there's thousands of them there. It's thick, but sometimes you have to be right on it to uh, to eat them. I mean, for them to eat eat your crab. So anyway, uh, so mullet, pilchards, we'll use some thread fins, we use live crabs, and I don't use shrimp that much because you usually get a lot of snappers. Turner, what do you got over there? Uh, here's one from uh, C. Nelson 4. Aside from geographic experience, expertise, what traits make you and Rich Tudor different with regards to your ability as fishermen and guides? Well... That's a good question. I would say that um, right away, uh, what makes us different is our backgrounds. I started guiding as a fly fisherman out west. Rich started guiding as a mate offshore. So while I was getting experience on rivers and real finesse fishing, um, Rich was getting experience uh, catching bait, uh, mating, uh, both of us were doing um, a lot of, of you know, um, interacting with, with guests and, and clients. Uh, so that really helped us both to, to become guides in our own operations. But that different experience, me starting um, really shallow and even freshwater and him starting deep in saltwater and then us kind of meeting in the middle on the flats, uh, brought a lot of different experiences for both of us, and that combining those together really, really helped. Um, so, what else you got, Turner? 
Here's one from uh, Captain Steel. Hey, Tom. Snook can be a bit hard to find sometimes down in Key West. Any tips for a good setup to increase my hookups when I do find them? Hook size, bait, flat line. That is good. First of all, if you're finding Snook in Key West, you're doing really well. Uh, a lot of people don't find them. Um, and But there are more there than you think. The first time I ever saw... Um, the first time I ever saw uh, Snook in, in the Keys was when I uh, took the BBC. Uh-oh, we lost a connection on, on this one. But we we saw the, I took a BBC cameraman out and we were trying to film Baby Tarpon and he went up under the mangroves and he was like, there are no tarpon here, but there are tons of Snook. And so that got me really interested because I had never seen Snook in that spot and started looking more and more at uh, how to, maybe find them and catch them. And what I found was, um, the, the, um, uh, pilchards, catching the pilchards and throwing live bait, going to the mangroves and actually chumming those snook a little bit out of the keys, uh, out of the mangroves was, uh, way more effective for me because just looking for them on the, uh, on the mangroves, like we do a little bit further North up in the Everglades, uh, we find them like that often, but I just wasn't seeing them like that for whatever reason down there. So chumming with live pilchards and then just using a small circle hook and the lightest leader that I can get. That's, that would be my advice. What do you got? Here's one for all the, uh, gear junkies out there. So we use our saltwater spinning gear and accidentally forgot to clean it and it sits for a while. Is it too late to go about cleaning them or is it something that we can do to freshen them up? Well, I guess it depends on how late that is. Certainly, you're not the only one that has done that and kind of forgotten to clean up your stuff, and then you go to turn the handle, and it's pretty much locked up. So if you're lucky, you can rinse all that stuff off, take it apart, grease it as as well as you can, and sometimes it actually works. In other situations, that reel just never performs the same. So the best thing to do is to wash it off every time. Um, I know that's not what you want to hear right now, but just do your best. Take it apart as best as you can, regrease everything, and you know you might be able to you might be able to salvage it. Favorite Sturgill song? Hmm? My favorite Sturgill song? It ain't all flowers, but it hits the keyboard. Um, my favorite Sturgill song. I like so many. I like so many, but. Uh, I like oh well my favorite Sturgill song is um is the is the one the first song on um on his album with the with the ship on the front of it what's that album called do you know Turner you talking about Welcome to Earth yeah Welcome to Earth that's my favorite song it reminds me of of Turner right there and brings a tear to my eye every time <laughs> <laughs> it does though um. Okay. Um, here's one about some cool stuff with the Everglades. Um, have the Keys seen any negative changes in regards to water quality? The Okeechobee spills have really destroyed our water, our water quality in Fort Myers. Yeah. So the Keys have experienced a lot of different issues uh, with the water quality. And I recently learned a lot more about this by talking to Daniel Andrews on the podcast. And if you're interested in that, you should go check out that podcast because Daniel knows way more about this than I do. But here's my experience with it. We have had algae blooms 
in the keys that have come in and the water gets kind of green and and it just doesn't look right. The fish don't act right. Sometimes you can't find fish in them at all, in that area at all. And that goes back to, I mean, we, we were experiencing that some, you know, 12, 15 years ago. And that was alarming. And we didn't know why it was happening. Now it's starting to make a little bit more sense. Um, Daniel Andrews explained it as this, that there is a plumbing problem in the Everglades, and there is a water quality problem. Both of these problems, he goes on in the podcast to explain and explain how um, we can correct this, not by um, not by a you know recreating the wheel, but by uh, legislation that's already out there. And so, the water quality problem is when uh, water that is full of fertilizer and just dark um, nasty water shoots out both sides of, of Florida. And that causes all kinds of problems, seagrass to die off and, and, and all kinds of things that, that you're referencing there. Um, then the Everglades, as we all know, is a, is a big wide river of grass and the water, freshwater is supposed to just trickle down through there into the Everglades and, you know, recharge the aquifer underneath. And it's also supposed to be um, providing fresh water to the Everglades. Well, Daniel explained it to me in a way that I could really understand it is that that's a plumbing issue and that water is being blocked in a lot of places and we're not getting the fresh water down to the, to the Everglades like we once were. Um, each of these bites, Rankin bite, Garfield bite, snake bite are like a compartment in an ice cube tray. There's not a lot of flow there. And so it really, that area really uh, relies on this natural flow of fresh water, which is now kind of stopped. And so what happens is if you've ever had a saltwater fish tank, you'll understand this. If you stop putting water in the saltwater fish tank, it starts to, uh, um, evaporate and that water just continues to get saltier and saltier and saltier and saltier until no fish can live in it. And so we are experiencing that in a lot of places in the Everglades. Um, not so much just an immediate dark water, you know, coming into our areas like is what's happening on both coasts, but more of a, a salinity issue right now. Um, and we have had some seagrass die off. So a lot of um, uh, Florida Keys guides, Everglades guides are very, I mean, everyone's obviously very concerned about this issue. And what Daniel says and the guys from Captains for Clean Water is that if, uh, if people knew what was going on, it would already have been fixed. So that's, that's our experience with the water quality. Uh, I mean, there's, there's far more that we could talk about. We could probably talk about that for a couple of hours, but in, you know, short, short answer, that's kind of it. So as concerned anglers who love the Everglades and the Florida region, what can we do to help? That's an excellent question. And that was my question. And that was why I got Daniel Andrews on the podcast and we did uh, an episode with him. Um, right now, awareness is, is very important. Uh, to go to the Captains for Clean Water website, watch the videos, 
understand the problem, what I was just referring to of the plumbing issue and the water quality issue, they have excellent videos that will really, in just, in just a few minutes, you're going to understand the problem far better than maybe you do now. Uh, certainly, if you don't know much about the issue right now, in just a few minutes, you'll understand it a lot better. Then, um, you know, share that with some other people and let them know what's going on. And then beyond that, you can give financially to Captains for Clean Water so that they can continue to uh, fight the fight. I mean, those guys are going up to uh, Washington. They're doing all kinds of, of things and really dedicating their, their time, effort, and life uh, to trying to fix this problem. Uh, it's, it's a good organization. The people that are, that are doing this are trustworthy and they're real fishing guides and they understand what's going on. So that would be my advice. Support them. If there's another organization that, that you like and you like what they're doing, support them. But awareness is a big part um, of, of fixing this issue right now. English Nation asks, what's your favorite? They say that um, they know that the permit is your favorite fish to catch. Yep. But they're wondering what your number two and number three is. Number two and number three. That's easy. It would be bonefish and then tarpon, or tarpon and then bonefish. I like all three, the tarpon, the permit, the bonefish. That's the Grand Slam. Of course, I'm leaving out redfish and snook, which is the super Grand Slam. But I just love the tarpon, permit, and bonefish. And uh, in Key West, that's kind of what we fish for the most. The guys up, up a little further in the Keys have the entire Everglades that they can fish on a daily basis. So they probably do way more snook and redfish fishing than, than the guys in the in the lower Florida Keys, but um, tarpon permit bonefish. That's it for sure. Nate Price 1 says that we need captains for clean water in the Chesapeake region. Um, not too sure what's going on up there, but is there any other organization that supports um, clean water all throughout the U.S.? That's an excellent question. And Daniel Andrews, uh, you know, they are trying to grow. And they're... Um, mostly focused on the Florida Keys and, and the Florida, South Florida right now. But I think that they, you know, if they can fix this problem, I don't think they're going to stop there. I think that the first place to look uh, if, for help in the Chesapeake Bay area would be to contact Captains for Clean Water and see what kind of, what kind of uh, um, resources that they might have. Um, they are well aware, far more than I am, of who's working on these things, where, you know, and what's, what's going on. So I would, I would call them for sure. What's your favorite source for checking weather, tides, et cetera? Mm, I don't have a favorite source for weather, tides, and, and et cetera. I have a lot of different ones. I have, um, I use Windy for, uh, as an app on my phone for wind. I think that that is a is an excellent um, app, and that to me has been uh, the most uh, accurate and and where I can make my best plans is off of that windy app. I'll use Dark Sky to see if it's going to rain in the next few minutes. That one's an excellent one that will animate the weather with it where you are for the next fifty minutes, um, and it's very very accurate. I like. Um, what is that one that I have? I'm afraid to go to this other, this, it, I think it's called Marine Weather and the, the icon looks like a little anchor. Um, 
and that's where it'll give you all the NOAA forecasts and and really I mean the NOAA forecast and just you know when I'm out on the boat too I will just turn on the the NOAA weather radio you know you go to uh, WX and then go up one and you can listen to the the automated voice just kind of telling you that over and over and over again and NOAA's probably the best source of information and I would imagine that all of these people uh, all of these different apps are using the NOAA weather in some way, shape, or form, and then uh, enhancing it with either their own ideas or, or you know, many, many other sources to come up with their own forecast. But it is funny that you can use a bunch of different apps and you can have five or six different captains sitting around a table. And some people are saying it's going to blow 25 tomorrow. And some people are saying it's going to blow 15 tomorrow. And then, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the captain. It's a, it's the source of information that they're getting it from. And we were just in the Bahamas and it was incredibly windy. And I was looking at that windy app and found that that was definitely of all the different apps that people were looking at. That one was definitely the, uh, the most accurate. So windy, that's what I like. Our Mac fish was wondering if you ever had the honor of fishing with lefty Cray. Lefty Cray. I never had the honor of fishing with Lefty Cray. I got to spend some time with him, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I loved every minute of it. He was an amazing guy. My time was spent um, a long time ago. Mark Caslow had something called um, Shallow Water Expos, and it was kind of a boat show and kind of a shallow water deal, and we would go around and, and, and put those things on, and I would... Uh, teach fly casting there. And my first one ever, I opened for Lefty Cray and I was a nervous wreck and, uh, he couldn't have been nicer. He just made me feel very at home, told me I was going to do a fine job. Don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, it, it meant a lot to me. The guy was, was an amazing guy. I never got to fish with him. That's a, that's a regret. I would love to have, uh, he fished in some of the, the redfish tournaments. I fished right next to him at snake bite when he was fishing with Greg Poland. Um, but, you know, that's a guy that he was an outstanding angler. He was just a great person. And, uh, and he, he made it fun for whoever was around him, whether that was on a boat or just, just hanging around. So we all miss him already. All right. Um, Tyler the Trout. Is Tyler asked, the Trout. Is asking if you have ever refinished a push pole before. Mm. My stiffy graphite is starting to make Dude. my hands itchy after a day of polling. Would you recommend sanding and painting the pole? First of all, um, I feel for you, man, because that's like working with insulation when it gets to that point. And um, I have tried to refinish a push pole, and these were older fiberglass and hybrid uh, push poles. And once they start shedding, I never could do anything with it. I would suggest calling Stiffy and asking them what to do about it, and maybe they send you some of their special epoxy. Um, but those guys are solid. And, uh, and I would, I would definitely call them. I've never been able to, uh, salvage one once it starts shedding. That's just me personally. And I, after that, I just always bought the graphite ones. They're, they're more fragile. They'll break easier, but they don't shed. And, uh, I, I definitely like that because I never liked working with insulation. It was horrible. Um, what else? Some of these listeners are enjoying the, um, live aspect of the show and they want to listen to the podcast on other ways okay 
That's um, that's a great question. So we do a lot of um, uh, well. First of all, started this podcast as kind of an experiment. Didn't know what to think about it. I didn't know who was going to listen or if anybody was going to listen. So we have been improving every single time, and we're on number I think fourteen now. And by once this one comes out and the other ones that I've already recorded, we're going to be on at number 18 or 19. And every single one is improving. I load them onto the, um, the, the server and then they go out to iTunes is the number one. And you can get that um, by searching Tom Roland podcast on iTunes on your podcast. Go to the podcast icon. You can search it there. Then it's on um, uh, Google Play. So if you have a, a, a Android phone, you can get it there. It's on uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of those. And then we've recently been putting it on YouTube. And today we've just launched the newest one with one of my favorite guests we've ever had on Saltwater Experience. That's Ryan Nitz. We filmed an awesome snook show with him where, where he took us to, uh, to catch some snook that don't even exist in the Keys. Much, much, much bigger snook than than uh than we normally see um and we just did a podcast with him and put it on youtube and this time we like brought some additional video into it the first podcast we put on youtube was just a static shot and you could just hear um us talking behind it and so each time we've we've improved it we've we've now we're videoing all of these podcasts we and then while you're not just sitting there watching us uh, talk anymore. We're, we're starting to put, um, put these, uh, other pieces of video, bring those into it. So if we're talking about something and referencing something, then we will, uh, we'll bring in that video. So everyone's improving. If you have suggestions, please let us know what you think and what, how we could do, uh, the podcast better because I'm really having a great time with it. That, that podcast with Ryan Nitz is going to be live tonight. Um, it's going up on YouTube now and, uh, or we're exporting it. And, uh, after that, it'll be live, uh, there this evening. So, uh, that's, that's where you can see it. Pretty much any place you can find podcasts, our podcast is up there. All right. Braider Mono. What's the, um, advantages, disadvantages, favorite brands? Okay. Well, I, um, I definitely prefer Braid personally. I have almost stopped using mono entirely, and um, not that there's anything wrong with it, just my personal preference. I find that I can cast farther. Uh, it's stronger. I've gotten to where I trust it. I've gotten to where I, I feel I can set the hook better. Um, so I go almost entirely braid with a fluorocarbon leader. Um, but you have to be a little bit careful because uh, fluorocarbon doesn't have any stretch. Braid doesn't have any stretch. So often we'll use a little bit slower rod, like I like the St. Croix Mojo Mojo series that are a little bit softer, a little bit slower, and they have a little bit of forgiveness for uh, a, a system that basically has no stretch in it at all. When you start going with a super fast rod, fluorocarbon leader and braid, you basically have very, very little give. And I find that a lot of people are missing some hook sets. Um, but you just have to learn how to, you just have to learn how to fish like that. So anyway, um, that's what I like. I like braid. Uh, I like a lot of different brands of braid. Lately, I've been using Cortland. 
Um, Cortland braid is it's pretty solid. That 15 and 20 pound is pretty much what I'm using right now. All right. What is your favorite boat to fish from and why? Favorite boat to fish from is easily the Yellowfin 24 CE. And I first started um, fishing in Key West in a 16-foot skiff and spent a lot of time in a 16-foot skiff, mostly just fly fishing. And then later um, wanted to do the tournament starting with the Red Fish tournament, I mean the Red Bone tournament, sorry, excuse me, uh, starting with the Red Bone tournaments, which are a series of tournaments for cystic fibrosis in the Florida Keys. And um, like in Key West, there's a tournament that's Bonefish Tarpon and Permit. And then we had the Red Bone, which was Redfish and Bonefish. And then we had the Bay Bone, which was uh, Permit and Bonefish. And um, if you wanted to be competitive in those tournaments, you're fishing against some of the very finest anglers and the very best guides there were. So they were fishing with bait and they were going to destroy you if all you were doing was fishing with a fly. So I kind of had to learn a, a lot more about being good with, with bait. And um, that kind of started me getting more interested in having larger live wells. And then when I stepped into a bay boat for the first time, I couldn't believe what I could do and how, how much variety I could have. I could still fly fish off the boat. I could still go in very shallow water, but I had 150 gallons of live well storage when I'm referring to the Yellowfin uh, 24. There's three 50-gallon tanks in the back, so I could have uh, crabs and shrimp in one. I could have, I could throw the net and have pilchards in the other, and I could throw the net and have mullet in the other. And if you have that kind of bait, you can go, <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Plus I have now a 75 gallon tank and a 300 horsepower motor, as opposed to a 90 with a, with a, a 25 or 30 gallon tank. So, uh, the range improved, the bait improved, and then you could go inshore for part of the day, offshore for part of the day. Um, and that just to me, that's the most versatile boat there is. My favorite one. Kingfisher 7660 says, I have a 10-weight fly rod and 12-weight fly rod. What rod do I use for tuna? And what leader do I use for tuna when I'm fly fishing? Okay. Tuna fly fishing. That's an excellent question. So first of all, there's all different sizes of tuna. Um, I don't know where you're fishing or what you're fishing for, but I would say a 10 weight is going to be a good one for the smaller tuna, but tuna go down and they, they go around in circles and a fly rod is an, an incredibly effective fighting tool. If the fish goes straight out away from you and you're in a boat that you can go after him a little bit, you can whip a tarpon, which is a fish that jumps and fights like that straight out run um, a sailfish is another one that you can do really well with a fly rod, uh, offshore. Um, dolphin can be the same way. Tuna go straight down often. So that requires a lifting tool. Fly rods are not the best lifting tool. So I suggest you go heavier rather than lighter, 12 weight. Speaking of tuna, the plugs that you use for tuna... Are they compatible for freshwater fish like striped bass? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, any, I mean, if you're using a, uh, a plug that a tuna likes, 
chances are it looks enough like a fish that a striped bass is going to like it, of course. Um, and, and both fish require strong hooks. And um, so, yes, that, the, the easy answer is, is yes. There would be very few plugs that you use for tuna that you couldn't find a, a, a place for in your fishing for striped bass, I would imagine. I mean, we, we do use like uh, butterfly jigs and stuff like that where you might not be in those same situations for, for uh, striped bass, but I don't know. As far as plugs, definitely. Don Taylor is thinking about getting a roadie Yeti. He was wondering if they're good coolers. The roadie? Is that this one right here? It is, right? No, this is the, the hopper flip. So the roadie. Oh, the roadie is that short, the, the, bag, the small right? one. No, it's the small. I'm pretty sure the roadie is the is the small one. Look it up on, look it up on right there. Um, but yes, of course they're good coolers. Um, I think the roadie is the one. It's a hard cooler that holds like probably. Oh, it's the small 12. one. Yeah, it's the one that that we have. We we got some of those and we gave them away to our sponsors and put SE Multimedia on the top and they were they were incredibly um, well received. What a lot of people liked that cooler for was. Um, uh, being in a canoe or being in a smaller boat where you could actually in a small skiff or whatever, where you didn't want, you know, something that was too big, but you also maybe wanted to stand on it. So a lot of these soft coolers definitely are not good for standing on. Um, so if you're going to sit or stand on it, you need something with a good lid. And, uh, otherwise you just kind of collapse that lid. So yes, I, I like the roadie a lot. And, you know, my, my cooler, uh, choice, really depends on the boat that we're fishing in. Don't want one that's so big that, that you can't get around in the boat and you don't want one that's so small that you can't carry what you need. So, or put the fish in it that you need to, to keep. Um, had no idea you could fly fish for tuna. Yep. You can fly fish for just about anything. Um, a lot of times it's not anywhere nearly as effective <laughs> as the, as doing it other ways, but that's kind of the draw that, uh, that, that a lot of people are drawn, are drawn to. Um, All right. Um, I'm trying to stay in shape, but traveling is killing me. Mm. Any advice for staying in shape on the road? Yeah, I'm trying to stay in shape and traveling is killing me too. But I have figured out a couple of ways. First of all, I always take my running shoes and I try to get it in, but it needs to be in a place that's safe. And a lot of times... Um, if you don't know your way around, I don't really suggest it because you could be staying in a really nice hotel and five miles away might be the worst part of town. So I try not to do that too much unless I know my way around. So I usually take a deck of cards and my go-to workout is you take a deck of cards. Uh, deck of cards has four suits. So you got uh, clubs, spades, diamonds, hearts. And then you've got jokers and stuff in there. So I will take each one of those suits and assign an exercise to it. So push-ups are clubs, burpees are squats. Uh, I mean, burpees are uh, spades, uh, diamonds are squats, and hearts are sit-ups. So you turn the card over, face cards are 10, aces are 11, and everything else is the, is the number on the face. So I turn it over and it's a 10 of hearts. I do 10 sit-ups. I turn it over. It's a, it's an ace of spades. That's 11 burpees and on and on and on and on and on. And then you, um, you set up, you know, if you're in a parking lot or maybe you're in the hotel and there's a dumbbell there, 
then you can make one joker be, you know, 20 dumbbell swings and, or a mile run or whatever. But that's a workout that you only need six feet of space basically to do. You can do it in your hotel room. You can do it uh, wherever you like. And uh, you can get a workout done pretty much anywhere in a small amount of time. And if you want to go after it even harder, do two decks of cards. So you go through the deck of cards twice. Um, that's, that's what has worked well for me, uh, staying in shape on the road. Also, the other thing about staying in shape on the road is probably 80% of that is diet because you really go off the rails, um, eating fast food and other things that's, that sends you downhill rather quickly. (laughs) So try to, try to maintain the, the best diet you can and hit the deck of cards. All right. What was your first catch that got you really into fishing, which is a great plug for your spotlight that's coming out later today, published by Waypoint TV. What is that? Your spotlight. Yeah. Your Tell little bio. Your, um, here at Waypoint TV, we like to um, show off our producers. So we've written uh, things about Keith Graham, um, Steve Roger. Now you, um, Bill Winky, um, just really showcasing things that people didn't know about you or, um, um, cool stuff about how you got to fishing. Um, if you want to talk about your, uh, first catch, um, that really got you, got you hooked. Cool. Well, speaking of doing things that I, di- I didn't know about, that's one. I didn't know that was happening. <laughs> yeah, um, it's coming out later today. Cool. Okay. Everyone well, listening needs to check it out. Share it. Where do they check it out? Um, it will be published on Facebook Notes. Um, and then we um, here at Waypoint will publish a story where it links to that Facebook Notes page. Share it. Tell your friends if you um, enjoy saltwater experience and want to know a little bit about the man in front of the camera. Okay, cool. So first catch that really got me excited about fishing was probably catching um, cutthroat trout in Yellowstone and I was uh I was I took the Howard Eaton trail from behind the uh ranger station in Canyon and walked up the Howard Eaton trail and there was an elevated bank and I could see down into the water and I thought I was looking at the surface of the water but I'd never seen water that clear um coming from Tennessee that was the definitely the clearest water I had ever seen and it looked it appeared as though a fish was floating in the air. It really did. It was kind of freaky and it kind of was strange. Anyway, I climbed down that bank and after many, many horrible casts, somehow the thing came over and ate my fly. And that was pretty much it. That was life-changing. Um, pretty much decided right then and there that that's what I was going to do. So that was super fun. Um, but that was it. I, I guess my first tarpon ever was also pretty memorable. Um, but definitely the definitely the cutthroat trout. Here's a good one about um, fly fishing, leaders specifically. Do you taper your leaders while fly fishing? Do you make your own or do you buy them? Um, well, I'm not opposed to buying them. Uh, there was a time when it was tough to get a high-quality leader uh but then they came out with the 
knotless tapered leader for trout fishing. And certainly I buy those uh, if I'm going trout fishing. That's super easy. You get a nine foot 4X or nine foot 5X, you put it on there. You don't have to tie a single knot except to the fly and you're good to go. And then as you change flies and stuff like that through the day, you just add a little tippet onto the end. That makes it super easy and uh, you have to carry far less stuff. So I definitely buy those type of leaders. In saltwater, um, there are some, but it just doesn't seem that hard to, to tie your own. First of all, the, I don't know. I go by the, um, I go by the lefty cray principle of halves and the best, it's the best that I've ever heard. And so if you want to have a nine foot leader, say, or a 10 foot leader, I'll have to, I may embarrass myself with my math skills, but let's just say you start out with four feet of butt section and the butt section I don't think it really matters what the pound test is as much as it matters what the diameter and the flexibility of that line is. As you put that line up against your fly line, it should be similar diameter and similar flexibility. So uh, you wouldn't want it to be way, way skinnier than your fly line. You wouldn't want it to be way thicker than your fly line. And you wouldn't want it to be way stiffer or, or way more supple. So you find a, a line that is very similar to, uh, to your fly line. And that's usually going to be 50 or 60 pound test. Then you're going to uh, half that distance. Okay. So you got four feet of 50 pounds, say, and then you're going to go two feet of the next one. So you're going to step it down from 50, say, to 30. And then you're going to half that distance again. And you're going to go down from, from, uh, from 30 and you're only going to do one foot of the next one. So we've gone down half each time, four feet, two feet, one feet. And then you're going to double that distance for your final tippet. So four feet, two feet, one foot, two feet. And that was Lefty Cray's principle of, of halves. And that comes out with, what, four, six, seven, nine. That's a nine-foot leader. Ah, I was right the first time. Uh, so if you wanted a longer leader, start with five feet or six feet of a butt section. And then you'll have a longer leader and you taper it down all the way. Now, if you're going to add a, uh, a shock tippet, like for tarpon, that's a whole different deal, but that would be like a redfish bonefish leader. All right. Speaking of fly fishing, what was the biggest fish you've caught on fly? What's your, what's your monster mm. story? Biggest fish ever on fly. Um, maybe some sharks or a tarpon. Um, nothing really stands out to me. Uh, the biggest fish that I ever guided anyone to was uh, Lance Kaufman of Kaufman Streamborn. He caught a fish that we thought might be a, a, a potential record for tarpon, but he was, we didn't have a tag and he was horribly late to the airport. Uh, so he hooked this fish and he was already past time that he should have left. We fight this fish for a long time and this is before 9-11. And I actually took my skiff right to the beach in front of the Key West airport and he ran across the street and got on the airplane. Uh, after catching this fish, <laughs> but it was, I have the measurement somewhere, but he was, uh, that was, that was the biggest tarpon. I don't know. It was somewhere near 200 pounds by on the tape. You never know. I mean, the tape is, is an, is an estimation. So you take the length, you take the girth and there's an equation that you can put that in and get an estimated weight. That's a different weight than if you put that thing on a scale, I think. Um, but as far as the estimated weight, it was, it was a big fish, Lance Coffin, still to this day, the, the biggest one ever. 
Good job. Here's a great question. Um, favorite place to fish off a beach or solo? I don't have a boat, so I guess a, um, a more I- inclusive question for everybody in the audience would be, if you don't have a boat and you're looking to get in fishing, into fishing, especially if you're um, a young kid or don't have um, a lot of money to, to buy a boat, or can't afford a boat, how can you start fishing? Well, right now, there are a tremendous amount of YouTube personalities that are doing exactly that. Um, I just did a podcast with Black Tip H. He doesn't own a boat, and you can go and see his videos, and he's got thousands of videos, and and uh, he's done it all, uh, either shore-based or arranging trips. It's incredibly impressive, uh, and, and the, the fish he catches are it's good. So first, I think you start fishing off. Well, first you need to get into an area that is conducive to wading. And if you're in Florida, you have, you know, an area like Jupiter, Florida, an area, you know, around Okeechobee is outstanding because you've got a lot of freshwater opportunities, a lot of small ponds that you can go and do some pond hopping. There are exotic species there. There are uh, largemouth bass, peacocks, all kinds of things, knife fish, crazy, crazy fish, cichlids, oscars, everything. And it's it's a wonderland for um, fishing off the shore. Then um, you you have the beaches and there's snook on the beaches and tarpon on the beaches and sharks on the beaches and jacks and all kinds of stuff. So I would say the first thing is to get yourself in an area where there are a lot of opportunities. Secondly, if you're not in those uh, in your if you're not in an area like that, then just take advantage of what's there in front of you, man. If if what you have is a pond where you can catch bluegills and and largemouth bass, awesome. Do that. That's amazing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So just get out there and and do the fishing. That's that's the most important. And then as you do it and you become more excited about it, you're going to meet more and more people and more and more opportunities are going to come your way. All right. Um, here's a question. Um, that I guess we missed about tidal phases for targeting bonefish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we were, I was definitely planning on covering that Kyle Banaschek. Um, so I remember your original question was, is there a favorite tidal phase for targeting bonefish? Uh, and would that, and the interesting part of that question is he, he followed it up with, would that change with location like Bahamas or the Keys or Christmas Island or something like that. And that's a, that's a, it, that throws an interesting quist, twist into the question because, yes, uh, it does change. And um, so let's just take the Florida Keys, for example, fishing out of a boat. Um, you have a skiff, you're fishing out of a boat, and you can fish pretty much anywhere you want to. What would be your favorite tide for that? That might be a different question than, um, you know, your, your, um, in a different area. You're in the Bahamas and you're waiting. Uh, that might change. So I always like for there to be some sort of a, a barrier of sorts for the fish. And a lot of times that's low tide. So the barrier is dry ground. The flat's dry. Uh, and as the tide comes up, the fish are going to want to get further and further and further and further up on that, up on that flat. 
to, to get the available food that's up there. And most people will tell you that one of their favorite tides for sure is the first of the incoming tide. The water is warm. It's not moving. And then all of a sudden this cooler water, especially in the summertime, I'm referring to, you know, this time of the year, uh, you'll get a cooler push of water that comes in and the water starts moving, which makes all the fish want to feed a little bit more. Plus it, it's kind of refreshing and gives them a little bit more energy when that water is a little bit cooler. And uh, then as it starts to creep up the flat, they get further and further and further up there because they can go up on the flat um, easier and shallow, more shallow than the sharks and the other predators. So they feel very comfortable going in very, very shallow water. They, it's kind of like running to the front of the, of the buffet line. Um, and then as the tide gets higher and higher and higher, there are fewer places. It doesn't mean that the bonefish aren't up there. They're certainly up there. And as you learn that spot, you learn where on that flat you can find them. But if you're unfamiliar with it, until there is some sort of barrier that, that concentrates those fish, you're going to have a hard time finding them. So on, high, on the highest tides or on the tides where the, the, the water gets all the way up to the shoreline, until it gets there and the fish get all the way up against that shoreline, you might have a little bit of a difficult time finding them. So another favorite tide is when it gets really high and you can find them along a shoreline uh, where they can't, they've gone as far as they can possibly go. And oftentimes that little area of, of a barrier is a good place to look. Another place where uh, you, you tend to find them, and this just happened to us in the Bahamas when Jason Stemple and I went fishing uh, on, in one afternoon, the tide got so high that all the fish pushed back up into the mangroves. And until that tide started falling, they were uninterested in coming back out of the mangroves. And when it did start falling, we saw big schools, you know, 30, 40 fish coming back out of the mangroves. And um, the mangroves became the barrier. Once it got too, a little too shallow for them to be comfortable in the mangroves, they started pushing out to the edge of the mangroves and then eventually out to the flat. So, you know, the tide phase that I like depends on the... Um, it definitely depends on the location and what barriers I have to work with. Um, in Christmas Island, we were always looking for, you know, the first of the first part of the uh, incoming tide because we would start walking with our guides out there and we would be walking on dry ground. And in an hour, it would be ankle deep. And then we would just kind of ease up and we would find that depth of water that the fish really liked. And we would just keep easing up the flat with them and we could stay and fish all day long. If you just got dropped off there and you had no idea what the tide was, you, you know, they're wide expanses of, of flat. So it might be hard to find them in that situation. So I hope that helps. So especially when you're um, fishing from bonefish on the flats like that, what's your philosophy on uh, strip set, trout set, build ant set? Mm. Uh, well, first, are you fishing with a fly rod? And secondly, um, if you're fishing with a fly rod, you definitely want to strip set. Uh, and what we're talking about there is, um, you know, you're stripping the line in, you maintain the rod angle pointing directly at the fish, just like you're using a, a fancy hand line. And you just pull back until that hook actually makes contact and, and penetrates the mouth of the fish, as opposed to feeling the fly stop when a fish bites it, or maybe you bump the coral which, uh, or the bottom, or you got a piece of seagrass on there and you rip, rip the, 
the rod up like a trout set or, um, you know, I guess it was referred to as a bill dance set, um, that can cause lots of problems because first of all, you might not have actually had a fish on, you might've just bumped the bottom. So you rip that out. And now all of a sudden those fish were looking for the fly that rips out in front of them. It's totally unnatural. You spook the whole school of fish like that. Secondly, um, sometimes the fly just comes flying out of their mouth for whatever reason. The most effective way by far, uh, as far as bonefish, redfish, tarpon, is just keep stripping until that line comes tight and then strip some more. And then, you know, learn how to give slack when needed. And part of that learning process is probably breaking, <laughs> breaking off a couple of fish. So um, strip set is what you want to do. Here's a pretty cool conversation going on um, about fly reels. Um, what's your preferred fly reel? T-bore, Nautilus hatch. Um, what do you like to use? I'm old school as far as fly reels go. I like, um, I have a bunch of Ables that I, that I still use, and um, they have served me very well. Uh, I've never had a failure ever uh, with that. It's old school. It, uh, uh, they probably don't even make these reels anymore, but I have tremendous confidence in them and, uh, love it. I also like the T-bore reels that I have. Um, I've got a little, little freestone, uh, T-bore that I use for my seven and eight weights. And, um, man, they are bomb proof. And I don't even know if I've washed them off. I mean, they seriously, they, uh, both of those reels, the Able and the T-bore, those are, those are my personal favorite. I'm not real specific on, uh, on the fly reel. I fish light drag, uh, way lighter drag than a lot of people. I prefer to palm the reel. So I could almost get away with a reel that has no drag just, and that's just purely me. That's not the right way to do it. It's not the wrong way to do it. It's just the way that I have learned how to do it. So, um, I'm not real specific on fly reels, but Abel and Tibor, that's been my favorite. Man, there are a lot of fly fishing questions. Good. Which is awesome. Good. I love um, fly fishing. What's the best weight for redfish? Best weight for redfish. I'm going to say, uh, well, again, depends on where you're fishing and how big your fish are and what flies you're throwing. Um, you know, it would be, I would be quick to jump to saying, oh, well, you know, in the Florida Keys, we catch mostly uh, 18 to 27 inch fish. It's about what we catch. They're not that big there. Um, you, you might find some bigger fish that would get up to maybe, maybe 12 pounds, maybe, you know, that's a really good one in the keys, um, for fish like that, you know, snake bite, tailing fish and stuff like that. An eight weight's going to be fine. A lot of people might fish those fish, those same fish with a six weight. Um, a lot of it depends on what fly you're throwing. If you're having to throw big poppers and you're trying to catch them on the surface, you don't want to try to do that with a six weight. You want to be able to make the cast. You may be able to land that fish on a six weight, but you need to be able to make that cast without um, any problem. So whatever rod it takes to make the cast for the fly you're throwing is the one that I would suggest. You go to Louisiana, the fish can be way bigger and... Um, you know, you may end up fishing with a 10 or 11 weight rod up there, and you may also be throwing some very large flies. Um, so, you know, red fishing, you can get by on so many redfish on a very, very, very light rod, a five weight even. Um, but other, other ones are 
you know, they're big and they're bulldogs and you're going out there trying to catch the bull reds in, in Louisiana and you are going to be severely undergunned with a six, seven or eight weight and you may step up to a nine or 10 or 11 weight and that would depend on the flies that you're throwing. There are a lot of questions about um, fly fishing coming in, but here's a good one, especially um, because you just did the Ryan Nitz podcast. Um, this is one on snook fishing. The episode you did with Ryan in Jupiter, Florida was unbelievable. Any tips on bait lures to use to target those huge snooks in tannic water? Mm. Well, that's kind of what we were fishing. We were fishing the tannic water and maybe some people are not from Florida or maybe they don't know what tannic water is, but you get a little stain in the water. You get, um, oh, I, I am seeing on Instagram live that we only have a minute and 52 seconds remaining. So if this happens to go offline, I'll just start another one and we'll, we'll start again. So anyway, uh, tannic water, little stained, kind of iced tea colored, um, at varying degrees. It could be very iced tea colored. Like you can't even see into it. What Ryan was showing us, the fish looked golden. They looked, they, they, they were just kind of a little bit under the surface and they appeared very golden colored in that, um, in that tannic colored water. Um, Ryan liked the, uh, the mullet the most for those fish. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on where you're fishing them. A lot of places are the snooker not going to react kindly to a, to a one pound mullet crashing in on their head like they did up there. A lot of times we'll use pilchards or jerk baits, um, light, light little jerk baits where we can get it in the water without spooking the fish. Snook can be incredibly spooky. And, uh, so, you know, you just kind of have to go with, with, what you can get into the water. Shrimp and jigs are also highly effective. So I only have 30 seconds. So we're going to cut this right now and I'm going to be right back. So if you guys are all on here, just stick around. I don't know why there's a time limit on this Instagram live. This is the longest one we've ever done, but I'll start another one right now. So I hope I don't lose all of you. Okay. 947 viewers. Okay, now we go and just start another one, I guess. Yeah. And how did we do that? Mm, go to uh, Solar Experience Story. I did. And click on. Oh, that plus sign. Yeah. Right, of there course. You go. Check in connection. And don't forget about Facebook over here. Yeah, we're getting some uh, cool comments that I'm okay. just now seeing on. Um, we're back on. Facebook. Okay, thanks for coming back, guys. I don't know why that uh, cut off on us, but apparently there is a limit to how long you can go. But don't worry. We'll keep going. As long as there are questions, we'll keep going. Awesome. Um, switching over to the, the Facebook comments, which... Um, Facebook. These which there have been so many awesome questions on Instagram that I haven't even looked at Facebook yet. Here's one. Um, going back to the custom leaders, what knots do you use to attach each section and is a great plug for your knot videos? Yeah. Um, so that, that depends a lot on what kind of fish we're trying to catch and, and what, so Charles, if you can just tell us what you're trying to, 
catch, maybe I can be a little bit more specific, but mostly I'm using blood knots. So, um, I will use some sort, I like a loop to loop connection from the butt section to the fly line and then blood knots, like the lefty cray, uh, um, recipe, the, the rules, rule of halves. Um, that's almost entirely blood knots for me. I like the blood knot myself. I tie it very well. I'm confident in it. A lot of people like a double surgeons. A lot of people like, um, double unis. All of those would work fine. They would be great. And in a lot of ways, the double uni might be better than a blood knot because the blood knot, um, the the lines come out parallel or, or perpendicular to the uh, to the running line. So your lines come in like this, and then you have tag ends that go out both ways. So that can catch on the guides. It can catch weeds and other things. So uh, double uni, the the tag end comes out parallel to the running line, which can be a little smoother knot in a lot of ways. And a lot of people will tell you that a double uni is way stronger. So, um, uh, it's really what you prefer. I, I like to tie the knots and then test the knots. It's really easy to do. Tie a double uni on, you know, two, two lines on a double uni. And then on the other end of those two lines, tie a blood knot and then hook it around something and pull and see which one breaks first. And that is which one you can tie the best. And it's not always that way. If you hand it to your buddy and ask them to do it, the other knot might break, but it's about the way that you are seating that knot down. It's about the confidence that you have in that knot. Pick the one that you like the best. Um, lots. Here's a good one. Is there an annual saltwater school? Hawks K maybe. Would you consider it? I would consider it. I've considered it many, many times. Um, but we're just not there yet. We have, we have some, um, well, resources, honestly, uh, mostly time, but, uh, Turner just graduated or, or Turner, um, is in college and going back out to Montana. And now my other son, who's right over here, there he is. It's a family affair here. Uh, my other son is graduating high school this weekend so there may be way more time in my life. Maybe there will be a saltwater school. I don't know. I'd like to do that. I'd like to know how many people would be interested in it. If you are interested in it, shoot us an email or drop a comment, and uh, I would certainly consider it. I think it would be so much fun to get everybody together. I've also considered a guide school um, that we might be able to, you know, run some sort of a guide school, uh, which is how I got started in guiding. The fish hide under bridges when it's raining so they don't get wet. I don't know if they hide under bridges so they don't get wet. I think they're already wet, but um, uh, they do hide under bridges. And a lot of times they hide under bridges so they don't get sunburned. That's what happens. That's what really happens. They don't like getting sunburned. Nobody likes getting sunburned. Uh, but the fish, the fish definitely don't. Hayden is spitting coffee through his nose, uh, <laughs> laughing at that question, which reminds me of some of the funniest questions that I've ever gotten. One was, um, when do you use your anchor? And I didn't know how to answer this question, so I asked my son, Hayden, what should I say? And he said, when you want to stop. And so I thought that was excellent, so I did actually uh, answer the question that way. So I hope you didn't think I was a smart aleck, but I didn't know what to say, What when you, when you want to stop. Um, 
When do deer become elk? That's a good question that a lot of people <laughs> ask. When do they let the animals out of Yellowstone? Uh, when do the sharks normally come to play? Um, you know, where's that, where's that plane going? All, all kinds of interesting. Is that a cruise ship? Does the river run in a circle? Uh-huh. How are we getting back to the, to the, uh, to the ramp? Oh, the river runs in a circle and it makes perfect sense. Oh, of course. Um, here's uh here's one um keep on getting um and um haven't gotten around to it yet, but I'm gonna answer it now. For si- for sailfish fly fishing, should I use a twelve weight fly rod with an eighty pound leader or use a fourteen weight with a hundred pound leader? Okay, again, it's gonna go back to where it is that you're fishing. If you were going on the Pacific coast which you get a lot of shots at sailfish um the the sailfish are bigger than what we have uh in florida in florida i'm gonna say you could probably get away with a 10 weight or an 11 weight easy as long as you can throw the fly uh a lot of times you have to throw a fly that's pretty big so you don't want to like be trying to go with a light rod just for the sake of going with a light rod and not be able to make the cast because honestly you're not going to get that many casts uh, even on a good day, you're not going to get that many casts. So you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're going to be able to deliver the fly when you're asked to, and you may not get many times that you're asked to do it. So if that's a 12 weight for you, great. If that's an 11 weight, that's fine too. On the Pacific coast, um, you're going to get a lot more shots. Those guys have been doing that sail fishing there, um, and, and specializing in it. They're, they're dialed in. I'm talking about Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, those, those areas, um, sailfish are bigger. And I'm going to say a 12, 13, 14, good idea. Good idea. Um, but I also want to say that you can go the other way. You could say, be trying to throw a fly and say you're a, a red fisherman and you're most comfortable with a nine or a 10 weight rod in your hand. You may be easily able to step up to a 12 without any problem, but have you ever really tried to throw a 14? It's like a broomstick. And just make sure that you practice before you go and that you're comfortable with that. And again, I would say it's all about presenting the fly to those fish, um, making sure that you can do that. If you can do that with a a 12 as well as you can do it with a 14, then go with a 14. Or I I said that backwards. If you can do it with a 14 as well as you can do it with a 12, Great. Go with a 14. You're going to be able to land those fish a lot faster, but I think a 12 is enough, personally. There is support flowing in for the um, saltwater school. Mm, good. So, could be a good idea in the future. I like that. I like the sound of that. Speaking of saltwater schools, can you recommend a great resort in Marathon or Alamorada? He's looking to k- take his kids fishing in July. Mm-hmm. I can, actually. How about one right in between Marathon and Alamorada? Hawks K. That's, uh, that's a great one. And for kids, it's, uh, it's the best. They have a kids club. Um, there are things to do there for kids. Uh, the property is, um, safe. You can let your kids kind of go a little bit and, uh, um, they can, they can have a good time there. Uh, there's captains like Captain Jeff Malone right there at the dock that can take you and your kids fishing. If you have your own boat, there's dockage. Uh, very easy, very, very easy. So that's what I suggest for sure. Would you be willing to try some musky lures for tarpon? Fish a million cast. 
Sure. Would you? Ha- We've had great success with the walk the dog jerk baits down there with them. I would be willing to try anything that uh, that may possibly work better than what we're trying now. Um, I know that musky fishermen are um, inventive. Uh, you know, Larry Dahlberg is is somebody that's invented a bunch of lures, and um, and I know that he likes to do that kind of fishing. Um, so. Yeah, I'm all ears, man. White belt, white belt mentality. Always learning from anybody and any different type of fishing that we can bring into ours. Um, absolutely, I would love to try them. What is your top three places to fish in Florida? Key West, uh, Sugarloaf, and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Key West, Sugarloaf, and Cudjoe Key, all the lower keys. No, I really do like the lower keys, and I would I would consider the Florida Keys. You know, in a question like that, I would consider the Florida Keys as one location. Uh, but the fishing is far different in Key West than it is in Hawks Cay or Isla Mirada or Key Largo because you have different things that are available to you in the in the Key Key West area. You can go to the Marquesas, you can go to the Fort, you can fish the Gulf, you can fish the Atlantic, but you're typically not fishing on a daily basis. You're not fishing the Everglades. You go to uh, Hawks Cay area, you can hit Key West, you can hit Key Largo, you can hit uh, the Everglades, you can go offshore. Um, you're a little out of range for something like the Marquesas, but for the most part, uh, that's the, the epicenter of the fishing down there. So that would definitely be, um, top choice. Uh, then an area that I've gotten a little bit more familiar with over the last few years is Jupiter, Florida. Um, Jupiter is unbelievable inshore, offshore, freshwater, saltwater. You're in, in day shot of the Bahamas. You can, uh, deep drop. I mean, there is everything there from, crazy um uh species like peacock bass and and uh knife fish nearby you can run over to the other coast and and fish for tarpon and snook and stuff like that right there some of the biggest snook i've ever seen um the tarpon fishing's great on both coasts so i mean if you if you went 100 miles from jupiter florida you can pretty much fish um uh, you're almost in the Keys, I guess, but you could fish part of the Everglades. You could fish the Bahamas. You could fish inshore and offshore, both coasts. And um, that's a pretty, pretty impressive area. And then uh, in Florida, also the Apalachicola, you know, the Panhandle area. Um, very, very, very good. So I guess those would be my three. Here's a um, cool question that can. Um, What's your opinion on the Goliath grouper? Should they open it? Should there be a lottery? Should they keep it closed? It's a great question. I think they should absolutely open it. Um, and I think they should open it in the way that, that other states have deer hunting or um, bear hunting or some sort of, uh, whether that's a lottery or there are just so many licenses available for a little while. Um, I think that, I think that their numbers are, I mean, I'm no scientist, but I go out to those wrecks and they're loaded. I mean, there's so many, it's unbelievable. And sometimes you go out to the wrecks and there's really very little else besides those things. I mean, those are ultimate predators. 
Um, I think that uh, allowing hook and line fishing, I'm not sure that spear fishing at this point, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a, as a, uh, an experiment kind of thing. I'm not sure that's where I would start, but I think hook and line fishing, letting people buy a tag and harvest one fish a year and do that strict under strict, uh, you know, scientific, um, guidelines of how many fish could be harvested in a certain area. I think that once they started doing that, they would notice that, wow, the population is sustaining and, uh, maybe we can do a little bit more. Uh, and a little bit more, uh, maybe never opening it back up to the, just the complete slaughter that they once had, but man, there are a lot of them out there. And when you have too many predators, I think that, um, I mean, you, you, you have, it gets out of balance. I mean, it's all about, it's all about the balance and I don't think that it's in balance right now. So is that why it closed because of unregulated harvest? I think that it was regulated harvest. I just think that uh, the method was very, very effective, right? Um, I think that you have to always be careful with commercial fishing uh, or just just recreational harvest. If you're fishing for a fish, like we 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 had this problem with redfish, and the redfish became very, very almost endangered, and there were very few redfish. And a lot of people don't remember this because they're too young or whatever, but they. Uh, Chef Paul Prudhomme came up with a recipe called black and red fish, and it was pretty much on every menu there was, which that's not a problem in itself. The problem is that the fishing method, the red fish lends itself to a fishing method that was just too effective. The red fish get in a big giant ball that can be seen from an airplane and you can have a boat with a purse seine that goes all the way around the school of redfish and just pulls it up like a cast net and catches every single one of them. And so if those fish have high commercial value, then the commercial fishermen, that's what you go fish for. And if that also happens that those fish are really easy, all you got to do is find a school and you're going to catch every one of them, that is the recipe for overfishing. And, and, you know, the price went sky high because all the restaurants wanted them and the method was incredibly effective. So could you change the method? No purse sayings. Then we wouldn't have had the, the issues that we had if only you could rod and reel fish or, you know, so I think with the Goliath grouper, you know, that's before my time when they really, but all you got to do is go in these old restaurants and look on the wall and, you know, they're there's pictures of boats and they've got, you know, 12, 250 pounders in the boat. And the Same boats, thing with boats just and down. Yeah. Fishing. yeah, I, I guess. But the Goliath, you know, it, it sits in a hole. It's a mega predator. It's not afraid of you. You go down there, you can look it straight in the face and, and it's not going anywhere. You're not doing that with a black grouper. Like a black grouper is gone, right? A Goliath just sits there and you spear it right in the head, stone it dead pull it up and then you go down and all the other ones didn't leave, right? They're just there and they're hanging out. They got nothing to be afraid of, or that's what they think. And then boom, you get that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And it's just, it can be very, very effective. I get it. It's that fish is very valuable for divers. Like 
that will make someone's life. They go down there, they see a 200, 400-pound Goliath grouper. It's the biggest fish they've ever seen. It's mean-looking. It's open in its mouth. Maybe they even let divers touch it. Um, it's, it's a great experience. I get that. That fish needs to be there. I don't, I'm not saying kill them all. I think that you could open it under a lottery or under a tag situation and harvest some. I think would be a good idea. Oh, here's a um, here's a great question that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, this guy wants to bring his own boat down to the Keys for the first time. He's looking for pointers to catch a grouper or snapper. Um, so I guess really, um, I don't know if you want to target those specific fish. So groupers and snappers in the Florida Keys, good thing you want those because that is probably the most available fish that there are down there and um very very easy you can catch groupers and snappers both on the gulf side and on the atlantic side so depending on what the weather conditions are and if this is a lifetime trip for you i can almost assure you that the wind's going to blow harder than you thought it was going to uh because that's just the way it works um unfortunately so let's just say you go down there in the winter you have a north cold front well good thing that the south side is completely in the lee so you can still get out to the patch reeves and catch mangrove snapper mutton snapper yellowtail snapper uh black grouper gag grouper uh strawberries all kinds of stuff if you have a hard south wind you can go into the back country and catch gags uh mangrove snapper uh lots and lots and lots of spots um Cast netting pilchards is a great way to start, uh, and and lots of frozen block chum, and you can you can catch you can do very well uh, for the muttons. You can watch a lot of the end of the blue episodes and see how those guys are doing the uh, the um, chumming with sand and soft chum and making these sand balls and dropping them down. Uh, a lot of times with a live pilchard inside the sand ball, so it goes all the way down and it is leaving a trail of, uh, of, of sand and, and chum all the way down. So you're chumming all the way down to the bottom instead of just straight out across the top. Um, learning that sandball technique may help you greatly. So I would suggest checking that out. A lot of cool, a lot of cool responses to the, um, Goliath conversation. Really? Um, this Do we have a lot of people that think that you should harvest them or not? Not too many opinions out there, but um, a lot of a lot of questions. This guy's wondering if they should put a lottery out there for Goliath grouper as they do out west for elk yeah. and deer, which yeah. is a cool question. I mean, I think I think at the at the least they should put a lottery on it. First of all, first of all, you have to allow any any to be harvested because. Typically, when something is closed like that, it's difficult to get it reopened. Um, so I think it would be a huge step to have anything where, where you could have one tag in the entire state of Florida. That would be a start to get one tag per county, to get you know one tag per person. I don't know. I don't know what is sustainable. Um, that's not my job. My job is is my job allows me to go out there and notice that it's out of it's out of uh balance there're more than there used to be and uh i don't think that's a good thing 
Here's a um, question about the best way for a young angler to get their name out there and obtain sponsors and continue their passion of fishing and tournaments. Man, that's a that's a really good question because things sure have changed. Um, well, before before the internet, the best way for you to get your name out there was to be out there and spend as much time as you possibly could. And um, now with the internet and social media, there are many other ways that you can get your name out there. And you have one successful fishing trip that can, you can milk that successful fishing trip for months and, uh, and make it look like you're out there every day. There's no substitute for being out there every day. Um, it may take you longer to get your name out there than some other people, but if you, if you really learn what you're doing, the cream rises to the top. That's what I say. And, um, you know, there's a fine balance between being out there every day and running a good social media channel and, uh, and entertaining people. You definitely need that. You definitely need that in today's, today's world. But I think the most important thing is that you actually know what you're doing. So, and the the only way you're going to really know what you're doing is trial and error and being out there a lot. So it's a fine line. Um, fine line. Man, there are still people putting stuff up with the uh, Goliath grouper. Um, this guy said that he thought the best way to start would be one Goliath grouper, grouper per boat per day in a limited size to start and then recheck the population after a limited season. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a way that they have done things like that in other states, um, maybe not even about fish, but uh, deer, turkey, uh, coyotes, wolves, um, all, all, all kinds of things that are controversial in that they um, maybe provide tourism dollars, the fact that they're there. You know, a lot of the divers want these things there, the dive operations. I totally understand. There could be areas where you do not, where they are not allowed to harvest, like on these big artificial reef wrecks that have been sunk, the Thunderbolt, right? There's dive boats that go out there all the time. It's not necessary to harvest those fish. And that's a no, that's a no fishing zone. I get it. That's fine. That's, that's used for, you know, something else, or you can't kill them there, or I don't know what, what it is. But I think that, I think that they're, I think that you should have some sort of limited season. But again, the way to start is with one, one being harvested legally. And then they can see that that did not damage the population. So maybe it's two next, maybe it's three. I mean, I think that we should be pushing for, for a, a single permit or a single permit per county or a single permit per whatever. I think I think it's very aggressive to say one one fish per boat per person for these two weeks because I'm telling you what man they would there would be a lot less. You like many lobsters? Yeah, it would be. So I th- I'm not saying that, that that they that that wouldn't be sustainable. That might be perfectly sustainable, but I just think that's I think that's a little bit of aggressive way to start, and I think may not be the best approach. I think a, a stair step of 
harvesting a few, noticing, wow, there's even more now, or it didn't hurt the population or whatever, and then stair-step it up a little bit more and stair-step it up a little bit more. And maybe, maybe you protect the spawning time of the year and you protect all these other times of the year, but there are certain times of the year that you can take them. I think that's a good start. This is cool because um, this conversation is going on two different ends of the spectrum with the um, greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bears, which is um, also a cool topic. This guy says to um, make plans to come up with them and get on some monster muskies. I like that. Mm, I do too. Let's, um, Bode Gabler. Let's, um, let's do that. It's awesome. Um, in your opinion, what's the best product out on the market right now to hold my 24 Pathfinder in place? Um, I'm assuming you're talking about like a, a, a automatic anchoring device. And I would say without question, it would be the power pole. Um, I use the 10 foot blades and, um, and they're, 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 they're awesome. My phone is really low on battery. We're going to have to get a charger somehow. Um, so the, the 10 foot power pole, that's what I would suggest. That would be great. Thanks. Man, a lot of cool questions about um, fish populations and management. How do you feel about our snook population? I'm assuming he's um, talking about Florida. Well, we fished with uh, Richard Black after the after the hurricane Irma, and we're very interested in the snook populations and his opinion of what he's seeing every day, and as it compares to our opinion of what we're seeing every day, and uh, and felt like. Um, the snook were, were, okay, sorry, my video got paused because I plugged in this thing. Um, we all felt like the snook population was, was strong and healthy, uh, at least where we were fishing in the Florida Keys. Um, a few years ago, we had a cold front that definitely knocked them down a little bit, but for the most part, I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling good about the snook population. Is there any truth to the rumors about a new show, The Hawks K Chronicles? Wow. I don't know. Uh, we're not putting it on. That's all I know. The Hawks K Chronicles. <laughs> That's <laughs> Sounds, a good name. Yeah. Yeah. Too bad it's already been used. <laughs> um, here's another one about um, young anglers starting up. As a young angler, how would you suggest getting on a boat as a mate to learn the ropes and learn the area? Mm. I wrote a really good um, article, or at least I thought it was good. You can go to saltwaterexperience.com and you can look up, um, I think there's, what does that look like? Pull that up there. Um, it looks like the blog, you go to the blog and then you um, search um, guiding, I think. And there's there's one that says how to be a, how to be a fishing guide. Anyway. The purpose or, or the, uh, the idea of the article is that you, if you want to be a mate, you keep showing up, start walking the docks, talking to the captains. Uh, probably at first they're going to tell you that they don't have anything for you. Keep showing up, keep showing up and, uh, you know, wash their boat, offer to wash their boat, show them that you can work, do the work, show up every day. And sooner or later, somebody's not going to show up and you're going to be there and you're going to have your shot. 
um, that's the way to do it. You know, find somebody that you want to work for and hang around and, uh, and show them that you're willing to work and that you're willing to work harder than, than other people. Um, and that's, that's one way to get out there. How does the, um, shark fishing tactics in Florida differ or are similar in ways we fish for them in Texas? My best tactic for clients is dropping large baits into shipping channels. For sharks? Mm-hmm. Um, so say that again. How does it, <laughs> how does it, how does it differ from what? How does it, how does the, um fishing tactics in Florida differ or are similar to the fishing tactics in Texas. He is using the tactic of dropping baits into shipping channels. Well, I'm sure that would work just fine. Large baits. I'm sure that would work just fine in Florida. Um, we have the luxury of, at least where we fish, of having very clear water. And so we can chum for the sharks with say a barracuda or jack Cravel or a bonita or some carcasses from the offshore guides that aren't getting used and what we do is we put those on a string a spear fishing stringer and a rope and the scent goes out of the freshly cut fish and the sharks just come in and we can actually see them and pick which one we want to catch um we'll get Nurse sharks typically are some of the first ones that come in. Lemon sharks, bull sharks, sometimes hammerheads uh, will come in, and uh, then you try to feed them a bait, and um, it can be it can be real effective. So I don't really know how a lot of people fish for sharks. I don't fish for sharks in a lot of different areas other than the Florida Keys, but that's the typical um, way that we we do it in the Keys. And then you have a lot of shark bycatch. I mean, you catch sharks on jigs and shrimp. Uh, you catch them on a lot of things when you're trying to catch something else. So um, that's kind of uh, what we do in the in the Florida Keys. More questions about kind of starting up. Um, this guy's wondering about a good starter boat for fishing in the Keys at an affordable price that you would recommend. He loves to get out in the water, but he can't afford a big boat. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would get. Any boat that you can afford is better than no boat. I see somebody on here um, uh, suggesting a canoe or a canoe. Uh, Ryan Nitz was uh, a guy that uh, that we um, just fished with, and he started out of a canoe. Uh, he was in Jupiter, not in the in the Florida Keys. What you want to do uh, on boats that like real budget boats is you want to make sure that you're safe and you're going to want to, I mean, because if they're a real budget boat, there's going to be a lot of things that are skipped in the manufacturing of that boat. And some are uh, flotation. For example, a John boat. John boat is a wonderful boat. And if you don't know what a John boat is, it's an all aluminum flat bottom boat. You can do a tremendous amount of fishing out of a John boat and they can be very um, uh, affordable. Right, you put a small motor on it. You put a trolling motor on it. You can put a polling tower on it, or you can stand on a cooler and you can pull it. You can row it. You can run it with a motor. You can drift. You can do lots of things. But one thing that it is terrible at is uh, it's very susceptible to sinking. It has no flotation in it for the most part, and um, so 
in the Florida Keys, we have a lot of weather issues that we have to deal with, a lot of wind, a lot of issues that uh, can make what was a very calm, nice ride to an island just a couple miles away uh, two days ago when the wind wasn't blowing. It can be really horrible and, uh, and borderline dangerous or catastrophic on a different day when the winds blow in a different direction. So whatever you do, you want to get a boat that is safe um, and you want to understand what your limits are in that boat. If it's a canoe, you know, the wind blows too hard uh, and blows you downstream or downwind 15 miles and you can't paddle back into the wind, that's a bad situation. If it blows you offshore and you can't paddle back into it, that's a bad situation. You don't want to get in those situations. You don't even want to think about getting in those situations. So you need to know what the limits are of whatever boat you have. And uh, usually the ability to buy a more expensive boat oftentimes comes with more, um, you know, it's more boat. Uh, it's, it's a boat that is capable of doing more things. So I don't know, canoes, canoes, all of that are outstanding boats. They really are. And they all have their place um, on the right day. Just, just be careful. Make sure that you have life jackets and that you're, you're prepared for and communication devices so that you're prepared to uh, handle the weather that is inevitably going to come. What's a good area in the Upper Keys to catch pilchards? Do you chum for them? I live in Tampa, and we catch them on the humps in the flats close to deep drop-offs, and we use dry chum, dry chum to attract them. Well, that same thing will work in the Florida Keys. That's more of an offshore tactic where you're going to go and target the, the pilchards a little bit offshore and use that kind of chum and bring them right into you. Often, uh, mostly uh, late fall, winter, uh, early spring, the pilchards are going to push right up on the beach and the birds are going to be diving on them and you're going to see uh, uh, little white birds uh, diving on them, but you're also going to see pelicans uh, diving. It's a telltale sign that, of where they are. You go up in there and throw the cast net and it can be anywhere from uh, two to six feet of water. And um, that's mostly happening on the ocean side. If you're not seeing that or if it's summertime, what you're talking about will work even better. Here's one. Is it possible to chum bonefish on the flats closer to your boat? Absolutely. It is definitely possible to do that. And in fact, that's an excellent way to catch them. Um, what we do is just uh, um, get some live shrimp and chop them up into, dice them up into little pieces and just throw those out in front of your boat just a little bit. You don't have to put a lot out there. And my mistake, uh, <laughs> my mistake sometimes is to chum way too much. And you know what happens? You get a bunch of pinfish and uh, other kind of fish in there. Bonefish are probably there too, but the pinfish and other things are, are, um, are, are taking your stuff before the bonefish can get it. But yes, you can definitely chum for bonefish. Andy Yaffa, man, good to hear from you, my friend. Uh, when are you coming home and taking your old fat friend fishing again? Um, I'm assuming that you're talking about somebody else because I'm pretty sure you've stayed in good shape. I would love to fish with you, man. I would. I miss the days of 
you and me and Stuart fishing more than you can possibly imagine. Um, once I was, ta- I was saying earlier, Andy, if you can believe it, check this out. Uh, ah, what happened? How do I turn this thing around again? Um, double tap, double tap. Nope. I don't know. Anyway, that's Turner and that's Hayden. Hayden is, uh, graduating this weekend. Turner's already in college. And, um, so Cynthia and I are going to be empty nesters coming up very soon. And, uh, I may have a little more time. Still have my daughter at home though. Um, but if I come down there and you're fat, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, Kingfisher wants to catch a <laughs> Oh, sorry. Andy. Andy says, tell the hook in the nose story. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was such a funny day. I took Andy and a person that will remain remain unnamed because I know he was sensitive to this because I took pictures of it. And he insisted that I give him the entire roll of film so that no pictures could ever surface. And they haven't. They've never surfaced. But we went into an area that is uh, a backcountry area, mangrove shoots coming up, scattered throughout, and there were these little tarpon in there. And he, Andy was on the boat, and his friend goes, there was no way to cast because there were mangrove trees and everything so he goes to roll cast but down on the bottom he just hooked a little mangrove shoot right so instead of just making the roll cast where the line just goes straight out like that what happened was is see what happened was is it hit that leaf and so when he roll cast basically it shot right up into his nose and it hooked him dead in the middle of the nose like that Mm. And I'm assuming you're the one doing all these hearts, Andy, um, because there are thousands of them coming through. <laughs> um, he uh, he was hooked dead in the middle of the nose, and I wanted to catch this fish so bad. So I was like, sit down and let Andy cast. And then I think Andy cast, so we had to watch this his friend um, with, a, with a hook in the nose. And then I said, hold on, I got to get a picture of it. And... Uh, took a picture of it and everybody thought it was so funny except at the end of the day uh i had to surrender the roll of film so i will i will make sure that uh he remains nameless because i know that he's sensitive to that what's your favorite fishing spot favorite fishing spot you open to sharon yeah um favorite fishing spot i've got a few um that that i really like i mean pretty much I have a soft spot in my heart for any place in the Marquesas Keys. I just think that's one of the most beautiful can't-miss areas that there are because there's no development out there. You go out there, and, man, if there's a fish out there, it's uh, it's just a beautiful day. I particularly like, um, you know, the south side. It's awesome. Tarpon swim there, bonefish permit. It's it's just all happening there. I just I just like that area. I like um, – I like – Pretty much everything, you know, Jewfish Basin is uh, is an area that has a lot of fond memories uh, for me. But there's a there's a place that that I call the uh, the Black Hole, and uh, it was named the Black Hole because it was everything but that. It was white bottom, and the tarpon would lay up all over it. And uh, I called it the Black Hole because I didn't want anybody to know where it was. Um, but that would definitely go as uh as one of my favorites 
Here's a good one. Um, again, about getting kids into fishing. Are there fishing camps for kids, especially now in the summer since school will be out? I would love to put my son in one so he can have the same passion I do. Okay. I do happen to know this, and I, um, I have a great suggestion for you. You need to go to Jupiter, Florida, and you need to look up Captain Matt Budd. And Matt Budd has uh, what I think, I may get the name wrong, but it, it may be called the Jupiter Fishing Academy. It's, and that could be wrong, but uh, the captain's name is not wrong. His name is Matt Budd. And I went fishing with him with my son uh, last year. And he told me he could only do a half day. And I was like, okay, cool. So when we show up uh, to the to the dock, he has like five or six kids on his boat. And, um, uh-oh, hold on. It was paused. I got a phone call. Uh, so Matt Bud has five or six kids on the boat. They all get off the boat. They're having the best time. They're talking about all these fish they caught. They went offshore and caught some fish. Then they came back in and caught a couple of snook in the Jupiter Inlet. And they just had an, an amazing day. And so I started talking to Matt about this. And it turns out he does this every day in the summer. Or I don't know what his schedule is exactly. You need to call him and talk to him about that. But he does it a lot. And he, your son will get on the boat with other kids. And there may be four or five kids there. And Matt teaches them all how to fish. He teaches them how to tie the knots. He, and then they actually go out there and get real experience and catch real fish. That is, you know, I don't know of a lot of fishing camps for kids. And I'm sure there's some other ones that are that are outstanding. And you should definitely do your research. But I do know this guy. And he's the real deal. And he, he is an awesome fisherman. He knows the fishing commercially, uh, recreationally. And he is going to show your son an amazing time. Your son's going to go out there in the morning. They're going to be back by around lunch. And it's, it's a special kind of deal. I want to do a podcast with him. I want to do a show with him. And I want to talk about all of this because I, I really like what he's doing. So Matt Budd, call him. Um, Kingfisher has asked this question several times. We just haven't um, gotten around to it. But he wants to catch an IGF a world record albacore on fly what are the chances that he can do that what's the uh what's the record right now why don't, I don't know why don't you ask him? kingfisher tell us what the record is do you know what it is um i'm gonna tell you that the record that um the chances are outstanding i think that you can do it um i think that um this is an interesting topic that uh, I talked about with Black Tip H on our podcast in that um, oftentimes where people um, uh, where people whatever is the most available people don't really like and so we have that false albacore that same fish is in the Florida Keys and they get really big and they are really 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 available and people don't like them uh, they just call them bonita but to my knowledge, um, it's the same fish that they're catching in the Northeast and everybody's going nuts over. Um, so you want to catch a world record, go with a guy that knows how to catch world records. And there is none better than Robert Trossett. Robert Trossett in the Florida Keys will, if a world record, I mean, he has over 200 world records, IGFA Hall of Fame. This is what he does. He looks at the record book, figures out, which one is attainable because there are some records that are 
quite impressive. And it's going to take a lot to break one of those records. But there are other records that are um, quite attainable. You know, you look at you look through the line class or the or the fly records, and maybe maybe it might be a, a, an eighteen pounder on two pound, and then it might be you know a, a twenty pounder on four pound, and then for whatever reason it might be a six pounder on twelve pound. Okay, there's your target, and if you look through these uh, records enough, you can find both which line class or fly line class will be the easiest or best um, opportunity to break a record and then figure out where it is that that fish of that size is plentiful and uh, will get you'll get a lot of shots at it because you, if you're going for a record it's I mean records are caught where people are looking for a record fish and they have one shot and they catch it but those are far fewer than the people who seek out the opportunity, say, if I could just find an albacore this big and get 30 shots at it, obviously you have a better chance of catching that fish than if you only had one shot at it. So I think you can definitely catch a a, a, a record albacore. Um, no question about it. I think that's probably a competitive fish. I don't know what the line class uh, or, or the fly records are or the line class records are for that fish. I've never attempted to to try to catch that one, but I think that some people do. And up in the Northeast, there are definitely people who are looking for uh, for records. And if you want to come to Key West, look up Robert Trossett. And uh, if nothing else, he'll tell you where to go because uh, that, that's what he does. He's all about records. Um, um, what's the biggest snook you've caught? The one I caught with Ryan Nitz. That's absolutely the biggest one. You can go watch it on, on uh, waypoint. There it is right there. Let's see. I don't know how to turn this thing around anymore. It's a big one. It was, it was big, but that is not at all the biggest one. Oh, you know what? Maybe I did catch a bigger one with Matt, Bud. um, me and Hayden, do you think Ryan it was bigger than that? Right there. A 41. Okay, so Hayden caught a 43. I caught a 41. That one that we caught with Ryan Nitz is probably right about 40. So, um, I don't know. I don't catch a lot of big snook. Our snook in the Florida Keys are not anywhere nearly the size of the ones in, in Jupiter and that area up there. If you want to catch big snook, I mean really big snook, that's the place to go. How does tidal flow affect bait fish movement? Tidal flow affects bait fish movement um, in every way. Uh, in during slack tide, the fish are are not moving like they like they will when the tide is running hard. Um, really, I think that there are so many different bait fish that it's going to be hard to answer that question, you know, very quickly. But um, the tide is super important, and obviously, if if a flat is completely dry and the fish were swimming up there two hours ago, then they had to move off of that and they went somewhere. They're going to try not to dump themselves into a deep channel where all the predators are, uh, if they can help it. And if they do go into that deep channel, they're going to ball up into a survival mechanism school where you're going to be able to mark them on your, on your sonar as a big ball of bait. Um, it's not going to be scattered. It's going to be all balled up. 
Um, but that's that's kind of a tough tough one just to answer like that. Well, depending on which which bait fish you're talking about. This guy's seen reports of lionfish in the bay and up into the glades. Have you seen any on that side? Oh, man, no. But I don't do a lot of snorkeling back in that area. But I know that the lionfish is just. That's a big problem. The lionfish is an introduced species that basically has no predators uh, other than man. And uh, they're trying to teach mutton snapper how to eat them. And there are some videos of mutton snapper eating uh, ones that have already been speared. I don't know that any fish are learning that a lionfish is is something that they ought to be eating every day. Uh, it would be super cool if they did because they could do the work for us. But the lionfish is a is a fish that has all these crazy spines and fins all over it and uh and they're they're they were sought after in fish tanks and because of that they end up in the ocean and they end up taking over the reefs because they don't have a lot of predators and they end up eating a lot of the beautiful tropical fish that everybody likes to look at when they go snorkeling um so people are really concerned about the lionfish because it is a it's a problem it's a it's an introduced species that's gone wild and they need to be eliminated not just controlled they need to be eliminated they don't belong here they don't have predators and they don't um and they eat everything so uh, people are trying to kill every single one that they can uh even state sponsored like no limit kill them all and luckily people have um learned how to cook them learned how to handle them and uh and and they are being caught and killed and eaten um you know so that's that's good but i don't know if they're back there it wouldn't surprise me though wouldn't surprise me at all all right um this guy does a lot of bridge fishing in the florida keys he does okay and catches a lot of jacks but he's wanting to catch some bigger fish and he's currently using live shrimp and pinfish but was wondering if you had any other techniques to catch some bigger fish. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of stuff at the bridges. I am not an expert bridge fisherman. Um, I, we fish the bridges, but we do it from a boat. And I'm going to classify that as being a totally different deal than doing it on foot. There are people like Dave Justice who are experts at catching fish on foot from bridges. And, uh, man, those bridges in the Florida Keys have some huge snook they also have some huge goliath groupers and uh their permit there there are basically every fish that's available is available there you need to pay particularly close attention to the tides uh what you're seeing how they're associating with that bridge and one of the fish that you can definitely target to catch a bigger fish from a bridge is a tarpon uh a tarpon allows you to see them because they're big you're you're above them looking down and you can actually see them they ride high in the water they roll um and oftentimes they get in the lights so fishing at night off the bridges can be very very effective and you can catch some tarpon snook goliaths big jacks all kinds of stuff what's your go-to the situation of water being extremely low meaning something like when the low and high tides don't even have a change in depth. So I would think that one of the most difficult situations in certain areas of the Florida Keys 
is extreme low water, um, especially if it's hot. If it's hot, summertime conditions, the lowest, uh, you know, the, the last of the outgoing tide, whew, that can be tough. It can be tough to find stuff because that tide has been sitting up on the flat, getting progressively hotter and hotter with the sun, and now it's pushed off into the, you know, and, and the flat's getting dry, and you really oftentimes have to wait until you start feeling that cooler push of incoming water before you're going to see much. Um, it is, uh, that can be one of the most challenging things. What I'll try to do is I will now with the electronics, I will have the temperature, um, available to me at all times. So I'll do on the Lawrence, you can do an, a data overlay, the data overlay that I like to have. I like to have the time very visible so I can always see what time it is and, and, and associate that with what the tide's doing. Secondly, I will have the, uh, you know, my speed over ground. I'll have uh, temperature and depth. So those are, the, those are the things that I'm looking for. And then the other thing that I have on uh, my dashboard is a water pressure gauge. Those are the most important things to me running the boat. I want a water pressure gauge so I don't lose water pressure and shut down. I want the temperature so that I can constantly monitor the temperature both in the wintertime and the summertime because that's really a huge factor, right? So in the summertime, the water gets too hot really for effective fishing. In the wintertime, sometimes it gets too cold. So if you're running around and you have a reliable um, temperature gauge on your electronics, then you will be able to see where the water is either warmer or colder. And that's usually associated with higher flow. So like, for instance, on the edge of Northwest Channel in the floor, in, in Key West, uh, the tide flows in and out of there with, with more velocity and more volume than just on top of one of the flats. So that, and, and it's also deep there. And so you're getting some of that deeper water pushing up there that has a little cooler temperature to it. And I've noticed that as I'm running through there, I may see two, three, five, even 10 degrees difference. Maybe it's two to five degrees difference in the summertime, but maybe it's 10 degrees warmer than surrounding water in the wintertime. Well, that's where the fish are. On those On the days where it's basically too cold to fish. You're looking for the warmest water you can find. Uh, on the days when it's um, too hot to fish, you're looking for the coolest water you can find. So when you combine that with an incredibly low tide, what I'm trying to find is an area like that that has a tapering, a slow tapering edge so that I can, you know, the flat part might be out of the water, but as, as that slow tapering edge is, is falling into a deeper channel, maybe I'm able to get a little closer to some cooler water or some water that's still flowing. I'll, I'll just say that's a tough time to fish. So if you're having trouble finding fish at that time, you know, so is everybody else. Um, just do your best and, and watch, uh, watch that temperature gauge. If I could only catch one species for the rest of your life, what would it be? And what's your bucket list? Number one on your bucket list. All right. One species for the rest of my life. It would either be tarpon permit or bonefish. Um, and between those three, mm, I might say bonefish because while I like the permit the best, you certainly don't catch the most on fly. Um, so 
if you didn't have crabs, then you're then you're relegated to fly fishing for them, and sometimes that can be somewhat frustrating. Uh, oftentimes, if it's super slick, calm, I really don't enjoy fly fishing for permit when it's calm. It's just not that fun. You you get 120 feet from them and they spook, um, and I'm you know I may be able to cast 120 feet under the the very best conditions, but uh, doing that into a teacup is is almost impossible so i can cast a shrimp that far i can cast a crab that far so on days like that i just feel like eh, sometimes it's a waste of time now it's very rewarding when you can uh, overcome those conditions and actually catch a permit on fly uh but i enjoy bait fishing for permit as much as i enjoy fly fishing for them um but if i had to do it for the rest of my life i would pick a fish that i could catch a lot of and that I could find in a lot of different situations. And I think that would either be tarpon or bonefish. And between those, maybe, maybe bonefish. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think I've ever answered it that way. And rarely do I ever say that I wouldn't want it to be permit. Um, so I hope that answers. Man, we got people from Morocco, Brazil, um, all the time. How often do you fish off Isla Morada in the Keys? Um, all the time. You know, Isla Morada and Hawks Cay are very similar, uh, are, are very close to one another. And, um, and, uh, that's where we do. You know what? We're about to, um, close out our second Instagram limit. And we're also closing in on two hours. So I'm going to say this is, this is going to be, this is going to be it. Um, so I want to thank everybody for coming. And we had some awesome questions. Man, you guys really did. And I can't believe you stuck around this long. So I hope I answered all your questions for you. If I didn't, um, man, just shoot us an email. And uh, if I did, or if you got to this late, we're going to publish this as a podcast, uh, audio and on um, on YouTube. And uh, we'll have that out probably next week. So if you want to go back and check that out and check out all these answers. That's awesome. And, uh, man, thank you all for, for, uh, for coming and asking all these questions. It, uh, it really means a lot. And thank you for all the support on the podcast. I didn't really know anybody was going to listen to it. And it's, it's great that, uh, that you guys are, if you have suggestions and people you want us to, uh, to, want me to sit down with i'd like to know what those are we got some amazing ones coming up black tip h deer meat for dinner ryan nitz davis bennett this one and then uh got some other ones i hadn't recorded them yet so i won't tell you but we've only got 30 seconds left on this so i'm going to say uh say goodbye to all you guys now we'll do this again it was uh it was successful so thanks a lot and uh stay in touch guys Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you got something out of that. Got just a little bit of news. We have started a weekly show that is designed to be up to the minute videos of what's happening this week, mostly in the Florida Keys, but also in other places that we fish as well. We'll be putting that out every week. And the best way to find that is to subscribe to the YouTube channel, YouTube slash Saltwater Experience. Search Saltwater Experience on YouTube subscribe to that channel and you will get updates of when a new video is published. I've also figured out how to put the podcast on YouTube, finally, 
A lot of people like to put that window behind other things they're working on and listen to the podcast while they are working. So we now have that for you. And there is a playlist called podcast. There's a playlist called weekly show. You can go and see all the new videos that we're putting up there. Started a new email address specifically for this show. And that is podcast at saltwaterexperience.com podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. Those emails come directly to me. I'll see every single one of them. So if you have comments, suggestions, ways we can make the show better, and particularly if you have suggestions of someone you would like to see me sit down with in the hunting world, in the fishing world, in the outdoor sports world, or just a motivation, inspirational character, or someone that can teach us all something. I'm very interested in your suggestions. So that's podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. You can get the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and we're also publishing it on the blog. The weekly show will be published on the blog too, but the best way is to go to YouTube, subscribe there, and you'll get it immediately when it's published. So until next week, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon.